Hi everyone, this is Graham from LSAT Hacks. And this is Steve from the LSAT blog. And welcome to the LSAT Pros podcast. Today we're going to talk about canceling and retaking and everything to do with that. So the first thing is canceling. And a lot of people wonder, after they take the LSAT, whether they should cancel. And first of all, what is canceling? This is something where after you've taken it, you have uh, how many days, like a few days or... I think it's five or six calendar days. Yeah, five or six calendar days in which you can decide uh, just to cancel the score. And what happens when you do this is the score never gets seen, not by you and not by a law school. But the law school does see that you have canceled the score, so they know that you took the LSAT. So this is different from withdrawing, which you could do before an LSAT if you just don't take the LSAT and you withdraw from it then no one will ever know you were registered. But if you go in and sit and do it, then canceling is the only way to have any effect afterwards. But what do you think about about this? Yeah, so cancellations are an option that I think create a lot of confusion for students because it, it creates this dilemma where you don't want to have a bad score on your record, so you end up with the ambiguity of never knowing what you got. Law schools don't know what you got. You don't know what you got. But that cancellation does show up on your record. So they'll see that there's a, this, this, this mysterious black box. And so I think, I think it's kind of a confusing situation. And students had reason to cancel in the past back when law schools averaged multiple LSAT scores. But that hasn't been the case since 2006. So I don't see cancellations as being that relevant anymore, even though LSAC still maintains the option. Yeah, I think this is just... Uh habit from the past that you know you even still see some schools on their websites will say they average LSAT scores they don't they just say they do for some reason um they also have this weird this weaselly wording about considering multiple scores too right which i think is even more confusing what does that mean what does it mean to consider multiple yeah i think i think they mean you know if they see a 128 and a 172 they might ask a question of, huh, this is something to consider, but it's not, uh, what, what governs their incentives is a score to have to report, which is only the highest score and that affects their U S news and world report ranking. So that's all they really care about in a, you know, what matters to them sense. Yeah. I think it comes back to this idea of trying to give the appearance of giving a holistic review. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of that, that, that language is coming from. And law school admissions are not that, holistic they, they may be holistic once you've met the numbers requirements but you have to meet the numbers requirements first but i don't think law school admissions officers enjoy this system and they know students don't so they try and give the impression they're holistic when they're not really so let's bring this back to the march lsat march lsat was this past weekend a lot of folks just took it maybe they're thinking about canceling based on whatever happened over the weekend and things are even a little bit more confusing because the March LSAT is not disclosed. So whether you cancel or not, you're not going to ever see the test booklet. You're not ever going to see your results. And so you might be thinking, well, things didn't go as well as they could have. What should I do? After every test date, I'm hearing back from students who have this vague sense of unease that something went wrong, but maybe one game was harder than usual or a passage or some logical reasoning questions. And they just feel this vague sense of dread that things didn't go well they're thinking about retaking. And I'm sure you, you hear from people you know, on your side, Graham, too, who feel the same way. Yeah, constantly. And, and I, I think we're both of like minds on this where we would tell them, if, if that's all that's going on, don't cancel. Yeah, because here's the thing. 
pretty much everybody feels bad after the LSAT. It's an extremely stressful experience. The adrenaline is pumping. You're tired. And frankly, you don't have the spare mental capacity to think like meta about like how everything has gone. You're just throwing everything you've got into the questions. And almost nobody, I found, has been able to predict how things went uh, if they haven't, you know, obviously, if you just don't fill out half the test, you know how it went. But other than that, no one seems to have been a good predictor. And it's also tough because you might confidently choose an answer choice that ends up being wrong, or you might be guessing between you might guess between two choices on several questions, and you don't really know how the fifty fifty went on each of those. So there there is a lot of ambiguity. Yeah, but so, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say the bottom line is you don't really know. And so if you just feel bad, that's not a reason to cancel because you might have hit your goal score and you'll just kill it, <laughs> like destroy yeah. your your goal that you worked for months to do. I've heard from people who thought of canceling and they considered it because they had that vague sense of unease and then they end up getting in the 170s. So it would have been yeah. a real tragedy if they had canceled those scores. Yeah, I'm sure multiple like 175 plus scores get canceled every year. And I think it also comes back to this idea that top scores on the LSAT, they have a, a great degree, they have a great ability to be self-critical and to be skeptical. And that includes skepti being skeptical of oneself and one's, one's own abilities. I think that those who tend to score lower tend to be overconfident. And those who tend to score higher are often underconfident. Have you noticed that as well? Yeah, I think so. I think definitely. And you can you can also come up with like, you're better at generating reasons for your belief. So if you have, if your emotional brain is generating a feeling of fear or anxiety, your rational brain can come in to support it with a bunch of reasons that aren't correct, but feel plausible. And the, the, the higher you score on the LSAT, the better you are at this process. <laughs> so it's kind of like a post hoc rationalization to justify why you feel the way you do. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So maybe it'd be helpful for students if we walked through some common reasons one should cancel. Because we've covered the the vague ones, but what about what about concrete reasons? What, what what reasons do you hear from students that you say this is a reason why they should cancel? Well, I basically never say that, so <laughs> um, I just wouldn't cancel. Because before we get to, I think there are a couple cases, but I just want to mention one thing that talking about you know like why you feel the way you do and um, that did like discussing whether or not you did well actually misses the point of canceling, in that it's something with basically no upside and all downside that in 2006 you know you would have when P when schools did average a students would have then had to think like okay how did i do let's think about how i did but now because schools just look at the highest there basically is no reason to cancel even if like let's say you had a 168 on record and you were hoping for a 172 but you fear you may have got as low as a 163 well what happens if you get a 163 schools just look at your 168 it, it really doesn't change anything so there's no upside to canceling in that sense. And I think just, you know, if some people have stopped listening to the episode at this point, that's the takeaway you should have. But yeah, there are a couple of reasons where it doesn't hurt to cancel, I guess I would feel safe in saying. Um, do you want to go over? Yeah, so some common reasons that come to mind. I think if someone, the test taker next to you or behind you was incredibly distracting if they were sneezing and coughing the whole time if they were tapping their pencil in a really annoying way that just st st stood your hair on end and really derailed you and you know for a fact that that led you to get several things wrong or messed up your timing or pacing or something or if the fire alarm went off fire alarms they're probably one of the biggest things i see 
and then marching bands outside if you're taking it on a high school or college campus that might be the case and so those are some cases where the distraction or the disruption is so enormous that i would say that could warrant a cancellation if you know for a fact that it screwed things up majorly for you but if it's like things maybe didn't go as well as they could have or one thing felt slightly more off than otherwise than it usually did on your practice tests then that'd be a different story yeah and even if there's a fire alarm you still have to sort of know that it caused a problem like if you just had a fire alarm and you feel some unease that's not the same thing as saying there was a fire alarm and i only got through two and a half games when i normally do four right we have to see a we definitely have to see a concrete negative outcome as a result of the interruption yeah i would agree with that for sure yeah other cases would be again pretty much anything that has like a concrete negative result like you know i i really had to use the washroom and i skipped half of the logic game section or i know i misbubbled an entire section and i couldn't fix it but even then i have heard of like occasional cases where like a hand scoring did fix that like i've heard of it once or twice it usually doesn't but like that's something you could try and it's also very easy to explain um but i don't i, I just i've do you actually recommend people cancel or are you just saying well it might be okay in this case i'd say it might be okay in this case it's not a it's not a definite i i wouldn't give a concrete blanket recommendation for all fire alarms or all marching bands i think that especially let's say this uh, this probably isn't the case for the march lsat but let's say you're taking the the November or the January LSAT, and you really want this to be the last time you ever take the LSAT due to your timeline, then maybe it doesn't warrant a cancellation. But I think yeah. I think we really want to think about like the common cases where someone's games section didn't go as well as it could have, or there was a curveball game or a tough passage that just f felt like you got a lot of them wrong. But you, I think you have to look at the exam as a whole. Yeah. My basic position is just don't cancel because I think the number of cases where like someone can know they did so poorly that it's like they had no chance of a good result um, are very small. So and clouded by worry and uncertainty. So I usually just say don't cancel. I think that's a fair recommendation. And then the thing to keep in mind is that whether you cancel or not, you're still going to have that take on your record either way. So it's not as if you reduce the number of takes that law schools will see. And I think that students are taking the LSAT more times than previously because schools are not averaging multiple scores, as well as the fact that now the test is being offered more and more frequently all the time. And so I think that you have the opportunity. Why not? I think seeing people with four or five or even six takes is becoming more common. Yeah. And one thing you have to keep in mind from the law school's perspective is sort of like a game theory thing so if they see a cancel what inference are they going to draw they're going to maybe assume that you did really really bad so let's say you're aiming for 165 and you're like well i know i missed like game four everything else was okay but i definitely missed game four so like i couldn't get more than a 162 based on how things usually go but, but maybe you actually like are at about 162s. And let's say you already have like a 164 on record or something, or I don't know. Uh, the point being, you couldn't have surpassed your previous score. Does this merit a cancellation? Well, let's say you were getting a 162, you had a 164, and you wanted a 165 plus. 
uh, that's just like two points lower. And but if an admissions officer sees it canceled, they might think, well, geez, maybe they got like a one fifty three or something, or like they might assume that you scored much lower than you actually did and they wouldn't think you would cancel for a tiny deviation so there's that risk to showing cancellation yeah so that's a really good point i think law schools may underestimate the unnecessary stress that future law students have related to lsats and a particular section going slightly worse than it otherwise would have and i would also encourage students to think about all the i mean people are always saying i mean i'm sure you too graham like I, I get down to 50-50 and I always pick the wrong one, right? I'm down to two. And I, that might happen for you for several questions. And so maybe if it happens for 10 questions where you're down to two and you guess, yeah, you could have gotten five right, five wrong, but you also could have gotten all 10 right. And if you got all 10 wrong, of course, that's unfortunate. But because they don't average multiple scores, why not keep the score in the case, in the event that you might have gotten all 10 of those right? Because that would be an enormous score boost if it did. And LSAT scores in general are on a spectrum, they're on a band, where I think it used to be three points on either end, now I think it's three and a half points on either end. And so if your true aptitude, let's say, is a 170, on one day it could be a 173, on one day it could be a 167. And so obviously 167 is less desirable, but you might have gotten a 173 and you may not even be able to properly determine for yourself which way it would have gone. And that six or seven point range, of course, is is a big thing, it's a big deal. So. Give yourself the chance to get that 173 by keeping the score on record. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty in the LSAT, both positive or both negative and positive. That's one of the benefits of multiple takes. You just get more chances to score at the high end of this range. And it can easily happen on like more marginal cases that, you know, where like you feel like things are a little bit worse. You might just get lucky. So, yeah. There's I something. Go ahead. There's, there's something interesting coming up this year with all these LSAT changes, which is that for the July LSAT, you're, they're going to give people a, a one-time opportunity only for this test administration to see their score before deciding whether to cancel. What's your take on that? It sounds like a kind of strange situation. Yeah, I think this is interesting, but I don't think it matters very much um, because for the same reasons that schools just look at the highest score and that's all that matters. And also that, you know, let's say you have, again, let's say you have a 164 on record and you get a 162. Should you cancel it at the slower? Well, not necessarily because schools might think it was a 150. Um, so it's not obvious what students should do with this. And I would only cancel if there's like a, a wide margin lower than what you have on record or what you hope to get. Right. So if it's a serious drop, if it was a, a major plummet from your practice test scores and it's a score that you would be embarrassed by, then you can make it a mysterious black box instead where schools will have to guess what it would have been. But at least you don't have to look at that score and you, you get to know. But I think LSAC is trying to do this. They're trying to implement this kind of score choice similar to the days of the SAT for people as a, as a, little, uh, a little freebie to make the transition to the digital LSAT feel a little bit easier and feel a little bit more smooth and maybe entice people to take the July LSAT who wouldn't otherwise have taken it due to the ambiguity around whether you'll get the paper version or the digital version. And for those who don't know, the July LSAT is the first time where they're administering digital LSAT on a wide basis. Half of test, half of test takers get the digital, half get the paper pencil, and they don't give you any advance notice, which is a situation that I wouldn't want to be in. And so I think they're trying to make this score choice option uh, to make to make the July LSAT more palatable. Yeah, and I think that's a nice gesture because there are going to be some people out there who like 
are going to strongly prefer one method or the other and might get rattled by getting the wrong one and perform worse in it. And this gives them an escape valve. So I think I do think that is a nice thing to have. Yeah, but it, it's good. But as we look beyond the March LSAT for those who might be considering a retake in June or July. Oh, uh, just sort of cut you off. I just remembered there's one more thing about canceling for people who are taking a disclosed test. If you cancel, you don't get to see it, right? Yeah, you don't get to see it. So this is another major reason not to cancel. If you're taking a disclosed LSAT and you keep the score and you don't cancel, you'll get the test back. You get to see how you did. You get to analyze your mistakes. You get to, it's just, it's more important data on figuring out what went wrong. If you cancel, you'll just never know. Uh, even if you aren't canceling a good score, you lose the data. So one more reason not to cancel. That's a really great point. For those looking ahead to June and July, the June LSAT will be disclosed and the July LSAT will not be disclosed. And so I, I don't think this getting your, a disclosed test or not is a really big deal as much as people make it out to be. But if you do want to have a disclosed test where you can see your results and can see the test booklet, then that might be one reason to go for June. And this year, the June and July LSATs, they're only about six weeks apart, I think, or even less. So there's not that much of a difference as, as for whether you're going for one over the other, at least if you're listening right now in April. Yeah, I will point out that if you take June, it gives you the option to retake July, um, but not vice versa. Though there is another one coming up soon after July and September, so there or October. Anyway, there's 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 lots of LSATs now, so it's a bit less consequential in that in that way. Yeah, it's funny. There's actually both a September and an October exam this year, as well as a November exam. So what it's going to be a very world? <laughs> it's going to be a, it's going to be a, it's going to be a very interesting year. This is the first time they're really ramping up the frequency of LSAT administrations. And so that's a good point, Graham, that yeah, if we're listening right now, you've got about two months till June. You have, of course, a little more than three until July. And so I thought it might be a good idea for us to talk a little bit about, for those who are thinking of retaking, what to do going forward for either a two-month or a three-month retake timeline. Yeah. So I think the first thing to keep in mind about retakes is that they're basically all upside. The downside is known. It's, you know, you've got to spend a few more months studying and you've got to spend whatever money you spend on buying prep tests or prep materials or whatever, which is, you know, a couple months of time and probably most cases no more than a few hundred dollars of money. Oh, and of course the LSAT fees, which I'm including in like the few hundred dollars there, um, the fees to the LSAT again. But the upside is potentially admission to a better school or a very large scholarship. Because if you get over a school's median, then that really, so you can look at median LSATs on things like law school transparency. Um, if you get over that median, you are dragging up the school's rankings. So they like you and they're more likely to throw a fair bit of money at you. So the payoff can be like very, very large, like not exaggerating to say like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's kind of funny because you might think, oh, law schools now feel like they have to woo you in order to get you to go to their school because not because they want the higher score, but they actually want that. Like they would love to have people with high LSAT scores applying and retaking so that they can raise themselves up in the rankings. I, I've even talked to current admission officers who say, we want you to retake. We want you to get a better score. And we, we even want to give you money to come to our school because that will help them in the rankings. And so it's crazy, but even just a point or two more 
can make a huge difference. And it's funny to think about when we accept the fact that there is a bit of randomness involved. Like I said, that score band three and a half points on either end. So it could be luck of the draw one day versus another, which is yet another reason to retake. Because let's say your aptitude is a 170, but you underperformed and got a 167. You could retake and get a 173 which is obviously puts you in a much better position for applying to law school than the 167 board. And of course, the same is true all across the board when we're talking about a six or seven point range. And so if you have the time and you've got a couple hundred bucks to maybe buy some more exams or whatever, then it's absolutely worth it. And even if it's even if you don't have a couple hundred dollars, I would go to a friends and family and borrow it because the ROI on that is huge. If you get a few more points, that could get you tens of thousands of dollars in scholarship money. Yeah. And so I think people don't consider this enough. Like I, I moderate the law school admissions forum on Reddit and all the time I see people posting and saying like, well, I just, I'm done. I, I can't get any higher. Like even though the choices that are in front of them involve taking like a large amount of debt, like 200, 300,000 in, in law school debt, which is, you know, a lot. And often for schools that don't have that great employment outcomes, cause you can, you can look these up on LST too. They're, I, I mean, I don't really understand America. Like all, all of the law school employment outcomes seem terrible from a Canadian perspective. <laughs> You're looking at like schools that are pretty decently considered, but only have like 75% of their grads get a law job. And like their unemployment rate for students is higher than the national average. And like, these are decent <laughs> schools. And I, I don't, I don't understand, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I'm talking about uh, students who have um, outcomes even lower down in this. And they're taking a lot of debt to do it. And they're just saying, like, well, it's it's impossible to spend any more time or money on the LSAT. Because, you know, the LSAT is very draining. It it's uh, it feels very dispiriting to go on and on and not get, like, the score you're looking for. And you just feel like giving up at a certain point. But if you do that, but then also go to law school with, like, a, a suboptimal outcome, you may have a fairly rough time, like, three or four years into your future when you're getting into the employment market, you don't have that many great options, and you've suddenly got 300000 in debt that you didn't have back when present you is worrying about like, oh, should I spend like this $150 on this prep thing, or should I re-register for the LSAT or whatever? Like Decisions that seem like really big now, where you're like, oh, can I spend like two more months on this or 200 bucks on this, suddenly morph into like, well, can I spend like 10 years paying off this debt and, you know, like something that's 300000 like 10,000 times larger amounts of money? No. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. I even hear from, I even had students asking me the other day, like, how do you feel about using used LSAT study books, like to save money on the books? And it's like a $20 book getting a, or do you want to spend hours and hours erasing pencil markings? Like it's $20 that you could get a new set of exams 10 more practice tests and raise your points, raise your score a couple more points. It's, it's crazy to me, but that ROI is, is enormous. It just can't be, I just can't state it enough. It just drives me crazy when people won't think in that way. And now with the LSAT being offered nine, 10 times a year, you could even take it. Let's say you got a, you got, you got, you got exactly what you deserve. Let's say you, your aptitude was a 160. You got exactly a 160. But if you take it one or two more times, you could just by random luck get a 163 and apply with a 163. And so I could imagine someone who, let's say, they took in March, they got a 160, and maybe they don't feel like they have that much more to do or that much more they can possibly improve. They could just do a timed exam a week between now and June and retake and get a 163 just with luck alone. Yeah, 
totally agree. And I should add that, you know, I recognize the difficulty in this, that, you know, you if you get a higher score that earns you or saves you money in the future, but you don't have the money now to do prep stuff, and therein lies the challenge. But apart from the LSAC fee, which is pretty non-negotiable, it's possible to prep well with, like, very little expenditure in terms of, like, you basically just need the prep tests, and then there's a lot of free resources online if you can't buy any courses that is absolutely not a bar to improve you more and as steve said you often just need to take it multiple times and by luck you'll like score higher than you did just within your current range even without any fundamental improvement at all oh actually uh this reminds me of a point that like in terms of time required to do it people think like you got to like study 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 but if you have already studied for the lsat a fair bit you don't necessarily need to do like six hour days for three months um you can just maybe study some and if you maintain your range and improve a little bit, then you could access that like luck that Steve was talking about and just score at the high end of your range and get a better score just that way. That is a very good point, Graham. And yeah, I, I find that most people coming to me are, they, I'm not the first point of contact when people are taking the LSAT because you know, Kaplan has a much larger reach than I do. But so most of the people coming to me, they've already taken some sort of prep course. They're maybe retaking. And so I say to them, you already have a somewhat of a decent foundation. Like you already at least have a general sense of the various question types. And so if you already have a good foundation and let's say you're going for the 170s and you're already in the high 150s or low 160s, yeah, there's more foundational work to do perhaps, but it does not require the six hour days. You could even just do five hours a week, 10 hours a week, and you could load a lot of it on the weekends and you could potentially do less if you wanted. But I'd say five, 10 hours a week plus maybe spending 20 to $50 on prep tests, that could be enough because there are so many free resources out there. Maybe Graham, for those who aren't familiar, be worth us briefly summarizing some of our free stuff for those who don't have the budget. I know your explanations are a big part of the free stuff on your site, but you also have other stuff too, right? Yeah, sure. So lsatx.com slash explanations. Um, that's like explanations for a bunch of prep tests. And if you also go to the like start here intro page that's up on the top menu bar, I have a bunch of free articles, including like four big ones on how to go faster on each section and on the LSAT overall that a lot of people find helpful. And uh, lastly, I moderate the Reddit forum for the LSAT. So that's reddit.com slash r slash LSAT. And you can get a lot of free advice there. And yeah, those are great resources. On my end, I've got the LSAT blog, which I've been running for over 10 years now. It has a thousand articles, even more on every aspect of LSAT prep. Most popular thing are the study plans. Some are paid, but I also have free ones as well. And then because people don't like to read anymore, I mean, you guys are listening to a podcast now, right? So because people don't read as much, I also focus a lot on my YouTube channel, which is at youtube.com slash LSAT blog. And then I've got this podcast with Graham here. I've also got another podcast, LSAT Unplugged, if you want more audio. But yeah, we're just putting out tons and tons of free stuff more all the time. And I think that the prep market has changed so much over the time that I've been involved in it that you could very easily do a great job studying with nothing but free resources and the exams themselves, of course. But if you want more, it's available, but you could definitely start there. Now, in terms of structuring, maybe we should talk about structuring retakes a little bit, how people should actually go about concretely studying for a retake. So we've kind of gone for like what the minimum would be, which I think is maybe a timed exam a week plus reviewing it. But what about those who want to go beyond? Okay, so I guess there's a couple of different approaches here. 
like one sort of retake would be someone basically at their goal score and they just need to take it again. And then there's someone who just is actually nowhere near their goal score, but they took it and they have to retake. Um, do you want to focus on like just one of those or discuss like both types? Like, what are you thinking of when you're thinking of retakes? Like just someone who's pretty much there, but needs to redo it. I'd say we've got both. I mean, we've got people who fall very far short of where they want to be, but then we've also got people who were just that close, but maybe they were three to five points off. Yeah. Okay. So I think for the people, I think it's a different strategy for each one. I think for the people that need to make a large improvement, there are two top level things. One would be like, take a longer retake. And two would be structure some time for breaks in there. Cause I think a lot of progress happens when like you work intensely and then you give yourself time to rest and you work intensely again. And then you give yourself time to rest. This is when I've talked to people who've made large improvements, I, they tend to have this pattern in them. Whereas someone who's retaking for like just a small boost um, could take a closer LSAT date, maybe take like some of a break after you take the LSAT and you're waiting for your score and whatever. But you can pretty much go back into it. You don't necessarily have to go that intense. You're probably going to get a higher return from being rested. But you basically just want to keep your skills up and work on like maybe a, a few specific things rather than everything. Yeah, agreed. I think that it's important to separate the groups because one group has a lot of work to do. One has only a little bit of work to do. And I find that people studying full time, whether they have a lot of work or a little bit of work, of course, they, they do run the risk of burning out because they do have the time available to study five, six, seven hours a day. And I agree with you, Graham, that breaks are enormously important. Definitely taking breaks both over the course of a week or over the course of a month, but within the same, within also within the same day as well. So taking a break every hour or two, unless you're doing a, a full length timed exam, of course. And then I think that if you're looking to make a big improvement, you might want to shore up weak areas, fill up, fill your foundation, any any gaps in your understanding. And then if you're already close to where you want to be, I think it's really focusing on the question types or maybe just the difficult questions that you're getting wrong and reviewing them in detail. Yeah. Um. What about this common question we get from students about, I've done every exam ever released and I don't want to redo stuff. What do I do? Yeah. So I think uh, two things. One, most people who say this still might have like a handful of fresh ones. And here are the exams you may not have done. There's the June 2007 LSAT, which you probably have done, but I'm mentioning it just because it doesn't have a number that's available free online. There's the February 1997 LSAT, which... Uh, was the old June 2007 LSAT. I don't know if there's a place you can buy this now, but you may find an old copy somewhere. Um, then yeah, it's, it's the... on Amazon used. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. So you can buy it on Amazon used. Um, then there's the Super Prep, which is has tests numbered A, B, C. There's the Super Prep 2, which has three tests, two of which I think are 62 and 63, but one of which is a formerly undisclosed test, which is probably around the same number. Um, and then, oh, actually, wait, that's it, isn't it? Uh, LSAT India, I guess, is the only other thing, but I'm not sure I would recommend that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I think you covered it pretty well. Yeah, there's the LSAT India, which is a bit different because it's only four answer choices, not five. It's used for undergrad admissions in India. So if you really want to just scrape the bottom of the barrel and do more practice problems, that is something available yeah. to you. But I'd say start off with the 86 numbered ones and then... Yeah. The super preps and others. Yeah. Oh, right. There's the um, 
the practice questions on LSAC's site, which aren't a test, but they're just like a little bit of extra. But that's that's all the like material I can think of that would be fresh that like people might not have seen. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, but then um, the other thing is like I don't know. I think people are just too hesitant to retake tests. Uh, it's actually extremely useful to redo the same material. Um, I think we've talked about this before, but when we were earlier in our tutoring careers, when we first started, there was like a gap where LSAC just hadn't published new books of 10, so everybody was using 29 to 38, and we just saw the same questions over and over and over and over again with students, and we got a lot better at the LSAT by seeing these things multiple times and getting something new each time we looked at them totally agreed yeah i also kind of came up with that 29 to 38 book that's what i did most of when i was tutoring and then also just when i was studying myself and there were games especially i can remember those were those are great games they're they're hard but they also can be unlocked with inferences and so there would be times where it wasn't until the 10th attempt or the 20th attempt at working through a game where i saw some key inference that made it more efficient to solve and you don't see that just going through it a couple times and obviously you might not do it 20 times but even five or ten times you'll you'll learn more and people always worry about the results being influenced by having seen it before and i say yeah they might be influenced but so what like your goal is not simply to measure your results and get accurate depictions or ac accurate uh, scores depicting your aptitude at that point in time the real value in doing these problems is in making mistakes and learning from them and then also seeing more efficient ways to solve the problems and seeing the formulas underlying the problems. And so redoing questions is actually really, I think, the only way to start seeing those patterns. You don't see them on a first pass. You might not even see them on a third or fourth pass, but over time, you'll gradually come to see them. Yeah. What I always tell people is to try to prove the answers or disprove the answers. And to do this requires you to find those patterns that Steve is talking about or just like hidden factors that you didn't see. And so even if you remember the answer, as long as you're focusing on proving and disproving, the same way you would as if you were teaching someone, say, uh, you'll get a lot out of retaking them. And then also with retaking, if you do it five or 10 times and you get it wrong every other time, then there's still something to learn, of course. If you're getting it right every time, then you know that you're good. But if you got it wrong even once, then maybe because you were tired or something, you fell from one of LSAC's many, many traps. You want to know exactly which traps you're falling for so that you can avoid them in the future. Yeah, I think this is an important insight about LSAT questions that, you know, a lot of times when you get something right, you maybe only had 70% odds of getting it right. And a lot of times when you get it wrong, you actually still might have had like 40% odds of getting that question right, depending on like what you were thinking in the moment, how rested you were and so on. And these aren't just like binary, like all right, full understanding and all wrong, no understanding types of questions. So redoing them and getting questions wrong that you got right before or vice versa can really be an eye-opener yeah I'm, I'm kind of thinking as, as we talk about these traps i'm thinking of like indiana jones and like the temple of doom where there's like all these various traps that one has to avoid in order to reach the center whatever it is and it's like on any given day unless you're totally at your sharpest you might be you might be you might fall into the trap one of those many many traps that are laid for you and so i think that it requires being awake and aware and alert, but it also requires having been through the process many, many times in order to see those mistakes, those potential mistakes you could fall for. Yeah, definitely. There's so many traps. Um, one other thing occurred to me about like giving advice to people who say they've used every prep test. 
One thing I want to point out to those students, if you're listening to this, if that's you, that most people studying for the LSAT actually don't use every prep test. So if you did use every prep test, then that tells you something about yourself. And usually when I hear this, people say like, oh, well, I did every prep test and like I didn't improve that much. Like it's not like, you know, you were just gradually improving as you worked through the prep tests. Usually people sort of hit a plateau, but then do all the prep tests because... I'm not quite sure because like, I don't know, you feel like you should work at something. But so basically if you did all the prep tests and it didn't teach you much, or if the gains really leveled off, then you have to totally reevaluate how you're looking at prep tests because basically you weren't doing it right. Or you weren't doing it in a useful way. You were maybe just doing like quantity of questions um, rather than seeking understanding from them. And, you know, Steve may have some thoughts on this, but the, the like full answer to what to do differently is a long one. But I think you need to get this central insight that what you did wasn't useful and that you have to do something very different. I you know, I think that's a very common situation for students. And it's discouraging because, I mean, if you've done all 86 numbered exams and plus the unnumbered ones, you so you've done like maybe 93 exams, to not improve much, if at all, that's enormously discouraging because that would be hundreds of hours of work involved, of course. And so that's kind of a, a major event decision point where you can decide that you're going to just keep doing the same thing and redo all of them again or to admit that maybe you didn't study as efficiently as you could have and that you actually need to change your approach going forward and that's obviously hard to admit to oneself and I, I went through that process as well where I did lots of exams and didn't see my scores budge much if at all but then when you start looking for the patterns and you start reviewing in depth that's where you can start changing your understanding and really getting some value out of these problems that you're doing. And so if your scores haven't improved much, if at all, then I would say a great place to start would be Graham's explanations to start really looking at people, looking at how a top scorer walks through the questions, how he thinks about each of the right answers and wrong answers. And that can guide you at, at the start. They could be like training wheels. And I wouldn't use them as a crutch, of course, but if you haven't built your foundation yet, then there's still something to be learned. And so looking at how others have done it would be a great starting point. And then beyond that, of course, you can move on to doing it on your own. Yeah. And one way you can do it in this situation would be before you look at my explanations, uh, think of an explanation for each answer or write down a little note and then check what I wrote and then just check, like, did you spot the, I mean, obviously there's multiple ways of like doing certain things. So like the fact that you wrote one thing and if I wrote a different thing, it doesn't mean your way was wrong, but forcing yourself to try will build the habit better than just reading the explanation and nodding saying, like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, if you try and explain it yourself first, you're going to more clearly see the gaps in your knowledge that then can be filled in better when you see what I've written, if you've actually tried it yourself first. That's a great point because too often students look at explanations and then they, they do exactly that. They say, oh, I get it now. And I have to really, when I work with students one-on-one, -on -one, I have to force them to articulate things in their own words. I say, put aside the answer key, put aside the explanations, put aside your notes, just talk to me and use what's in your brain. Use your mental capacity to just tell me what's going on with this question here. And that's hard. And people, oftentimes people will, will find that the student do doesn't really get it yet. And they want to say they get it because they don't want to be embarrassed in front of me or they don't want to even admit to themselves that they may not fully understand it. And so it's it's grueling. It's not fun It because it, it can make you feel dumb sometimes. I, I get that. I've, I've been there. But you've got to go through that process in order to achieve a kind of transformation in your understanding. And it requires 
really sitting down and laying it out, writing out your explanation for yourself. And then you can check it against others or you can talk with someone about it. And that's why I've actually laid out, I have a YouTube video where I actually put out there a student's written explanation. And it's not the most perfect explanation in the world, but it's a real explanation. And the student is articulating his thought process and pointing out this tempted me because X, but it's wrong because Y. And that takes a long time. You can't do it for every question ever, but maybe you pick the three to five hardest problems per exam and do it for those. And maybe it takes you a few hours to really lay it out, but that's where the growth comes from. You don't need to do every exam. You could even just do 10 or 20 and that would be enough if you review them in this way. Yeah. Explaining stuff to someone else is also a good way of forcing yourself to do the process Steve describes. Grab like someone in your household or a friend or whatever and just have them look at the question and explain it to them and having to deal with their questions and make sure you make sense to them is something that'll force you to up your skills. And so that's where a study group could come in handy. Oh yeah, that too, definitely. So what about what to do differently next time in like a, you know, a more general sense, like uh, are there any other things that people can do differently when they're retaking? I would say investing more in prep materials like we talked about earlier, getting more exams. A lot of times students will just get one book of exams and hope that will be enough. Or they might have first time around, they've gone into a bookstore and bought like a random Barron's or Kaplan book or something, or they might've gotten a book from a friend and just, and just using what's in front of them because it's readily available or free without having done the proper research or making the investment. And so I would definitely recommend looking for the best resources possible, not just whatever is easily available. And thinking about using, studying the right way from the beginning, using the right materials going forward. That's the, big, the biggest thing I would say about doing differently. And then also look at how your study process was in the lead up to this exam. So let's say maybe work was busy or family obligations got in the way. How can you structure your life differently going forward for your retakes so that you will be able to carve out sufficient time each week and maybe even each day? to study for this. So maybe you can, if you have these obligations of sorts, maybe you could tell your boss at work, maybe lighten the load a bit, maybe leave work at five every single day, or maybe have family or friends help out with kids or other obligations you might have. But you really want to make sure that you have a study plan that's going to work well for you to do at least five, 10, 15, 20 hours a week, whatever you decide that your goal is. Yeah, I think it's a great approach. And I think also like looking to manage your energy, like finding what times of the day can I make the most progress like give it the when my brain is the sharpest how can i fit things around this way and how can i lower obligations um the other thing i would do is sort of make like a strengths and weaknesses list and then also see which might be easiest to do for example like logic games are usually going to be the easiest to improve even if there's like fewer points there than there are for um, reading comp. And then some other concrete skills that you might focus on, like do you have these mastered well enough, would be say like conditional logic and logical reasoning, uh, identifying conclusions and reasoning, um, identifying question types. Uh, What else? What are some other uh, skills that people could like basically check? Like, do I have these down? Well, even things like sufficient, necessary, contrapositive, creating conditional chains, translating words like unless 
being able can you ID the main point in a reading comp passage if we wanted to go there for a moment. But I think that there's there's so much. I think you really laid out the fundamentals really well, and it's surprising that even people scoring the 160s aren't always totally proficient in some of these indicator words. Yeah, and the way you can drill these things is, for example, um, again, I'll reference my explanations. You can take a section you've already done. You can go through the questions. You can identify the conclusions and the reasoning. And I would do this timed, like you know, you can't time it exactly because you're doing a a different sort of exercise but i would try and keep some kind of time constraint on you so that you're doing it under realistic conditions and see if you can identify the conclusion and the reasoning and then check my site and see if you did it correctly and do this for question types too uh you can do this for like main point of uh the passages using main point questions or using the passage summaries that i do but basically do that to just make sure that you have actually like trained the individual skills because most people are like not as sharp as they could be on at least some of these and the sharper you get them the better you are overall yeah, those are things that carry across to all sections of the exam too yeah definitely all right is there anything else about retaking no i think that pretty much covers it honestly all right well thanks for listening everybody and if you want to find more information you can find me at lsethacks.com uh, if you want to reach it directly, Instagram is the best. I'm Graham underscore Blake. That's G-R-A-E-M-E underscore Blake. What about you, Steve? I'm over at the LSAT blog. You can email me at lsatunplugged at gmail.com. You can also visit my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash LSAT blog. Great. And there'll be another episode out on Monday. So tune in then to get LSAT pros. And thanks for listening.